Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Maria Cabré, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to a craft beer brewer or owner and someone from another field. We talk about what it takes to overcome fear, follow your passion, and become a successful entrepreneur. My actual host is out sick under the weather. Uh, he was here earlier and he recorded our first guest. Our first guest co-founded Zool Beer Company in Knoxville, Tennessee in October of 2020. Along with Bentley Blackshear and Tara Thacker, he has quickly grown Zool into a destination brewery that is one of the most buzzed about in the state. But why stop there? Their quick growth has them thinking regionally as they increase capacity and map out a distribution strategy. Welcome to the Bear Hour, Brad West. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's, uh, Thanks for having me. Felt like uh, it wasn't too long I saw you in uh, person here. It was uh, for Wakefest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, good to have you back, man. So I got a, a question. Are, are you a native Tennessean? Yeah, just south of Knoxville. We all are. Yeah. Born and raised? Born and raised. Big Vol fans. Oh yeah, can't 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 argue with that. I was uh, dig the balls. I mean, uh, Peyton Manning, of course, really kind of lifting that off for uh, for everybody. But you guys had a great year, even though quarterback got hurt. It was uh, expecting to see y'all in that playoff, but uh, next year, right? Yeah, same. Next year. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I, I heard you guys got a good uh, got a good quarterback. Now that he's leaving, uh, the next guy in line is pretty good too. I heard. Yeah, he's uh yeah Joe Milton. He's uh, he's got a cannon, man. He's uh work on some touch, and he's gonna be really good. But uh, yeah, Michigan transfer. But then we've got uh, like the number one overall. Yeah, I heard that. Coming in. I heard that. Uh, anybody, any, anybody better than Alabama? I'll take it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was your first exposure to craft beer? Like, was there like? an aha beer for you that kind of lit the flame that led you to become a brewery co-founder? I guess back in my wife got me a, one of those like beer subscription boxes oh, yeah? back in like 2014, I think is probably right. when I was starting to get in, into craft beer. And, um, you know, you get, I mean, I was drinking fat tire or, uh, you know, claw hammer, Oktoberfest stuff, right. you know, but, right. uh, then, uh, I don't know. I was going up to, New York. I don't remember why the guy I worked with told me to check out other half. Oh, and you know, that went into other halves, you know, the, their current tap room in Brooklyn and, um, probably had every beer they had on tap. And that was kind of my, like my aha of like, there's different types of craft beer out there, you know, and then kind of got into the big stouts and trading market, you know, had some of your stuff not long after that. Uh, and, um, um, doing a lot of the trading market, like I said, and then I was an investor in a brewery, a local brewery here in town. They're still operable, but uh, I helped open that up and it just wasn't what I was wanting, you know, had in mind for stuff. And so we uh, decided to, so we came up with the idea of Zool of opening it in like January of 19. So even like we're nice. still super fresh, yeah. you know, on the scene and everything. So how, how did you meet, uh, Bentley Blackshear and uh, Tara Thacker. So uh, I've known, like, so Tara, I was friends with her husband, Seth. Uh, and so we're, I mean, kind of all partners with it. So um, Seth introduced me to Bentley at, I think, at a beer festival in, in like, December of 18. Because mm -hmm. we, we, Seth and I have talked about it for a little bit, about trying to find something. And um, he introduced me to Bentley and... Like he brought me an IPA that he made. It was really good. And he, he was Bentley's backgrounds more in full mixed culture sours. Oh, and, okay. um, I was just very impressed with it. And, and, uh, we kind of made, it's just a weird kind of a weird, whole weird story. We just, we decided on a name in January of 19, went to look at a building in March and decided on the original build, the first building we even came up to. Wow, you know, and who? So, but who? who well, I mean, 
was it an overall consensus kind of idea that you guys were going to open a brewery, or was someone kind of leading the way on that as far as like? Uh, probably Seth and I initially. Um, you know, I was a little skeptical because I was, I, mean, I still work full time, but I was working full time then at a different company. And, you know, we were kind of just talking about it and doing some homebrew stuff. And, and Seth's like, hey, let's go look at this building. And so we popped up there and talked to the landlord, and he held it for us for about a year. Wow. Okay. And, uh, while we were trying to get, you know, finances and get everything set up, you know, so we, it's been a very quick, you know, whole process all around. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say so. I mean, uh, I mean, you guys, when did you guys open? Uh, October of 20, 2020. Yeah. How, how was, so, how was that? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, so we, we started the whole process and we were actually going to close on the loan uh, February of 20. And that's really? kind of when, Right, yep. everything like kind of went February. south. Yeah, and then um, the you know we already put in a bunch of money and and put a deposit on the building, signed everything, you know, and uh, signed the lease, and then it, we kept getting pushed back because of the PPP loans. Right, um, and so we finally closed on the loan in May, and that's when we started the demo of our building, full wow. gut, all new, you know, sprinkler systems, HVAC, electrical brew house everything mechanical and we were able to open five months later somehow um but that i mean that's yeah, still then, pretty cool i mean happening during the pandemic i mean for y'all to still push through and open that in 2020 that's pretty crazy in man. five months i know I mean, that's crazy that is unheard of we were we were fortunate a little bit because i mean it, it the you know the supply chain really went chaotic you know chaotic last oh, yeah. year pretty much yeah. you yeah. know 2021 but so we had a really good contractor that we used and the, uh, I mean, we at that point we were already like, you know, we already put in a couple hundred grand in for the, the brew house and trying to get it go. It was on order. So we weren't stopping it. Right. Of course. And, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, unfortunately we're, you know, where we're located, it was quasi open and, you know, pretty friendly right. to everything. So, uh, when we had to open up, technically it was 50% capacity, and oh. we had to wear masks, you know, behind the bar, right? Let people require people to, and but uh, I mean, it was balls to the wall, you know, from the get go. Oh yeah. So, so, how did you come up with the name Zool? Where did that come from? Yeah, so uh, three parter, you know, I, I'm sure right. you're. Uh, yeah, so partly Ghostbusters, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it was. Uh, we actually, you know, that was a meeting we had in January of '19. Was like. If we're going to do it, let's come up with a name. And we had this idea, bad idea, of being a kind of a ghost brewery. So, like, the band Ghost, how nobody knew who they were. Right. You know, uh, for the longest time, uh, we had this idea of just having a little production facility and doing random pop-ups and nobody knows who we, who we are. And kind of, uh, <laughs> that was short-lived right, whenever right. we found the band. But, uh uh, I don't know. It was like literally the last name on the list. And all of us were like, what is Zool is the, you know, everybody asked that question, you know, X, U, L. So are you, um, are you the, gate, knew, are you the gatekeeper? <laughs> Seth, my, Seth is more, uh, Seth's, uh, he's about 10 years older than I am. And he's more, you know, he's, he's the metal head and he's the, uh, he, he kind of lives it. But, uh, I mean, yeah, we're all big eighties pop culture guys and, heck yeah. um, and, uh, so, yeah, we just kind of came up with it there, and and so it was kind of meant to be. You ask the question, "What is Zool?" Right. So partly Ghostbusters, and then partly uh, from my favorite video game in the '90s, Diablo. Oh you know, so yes, the, yeah, okay. The, the Necromancer in Diablo. Yep. And um, and if you look it up on like Urban Dictionary, it's kind of got a kind of cool meaning. It's like cool in a bad kind of way, bad in a cool way. So <laughs> okay. it was, uh, all right. it kind of all fit. So it's like, man, eh, we'll do it. And, you know, we, we kind of lean into a lot of the pop culture, uh, you know, just like you do. And, Absolutely. And, um, Nothing wrong with a that. A lot man. of music. Yeah. Can you tell me about like the space that you open? Like, where is it at? I mean, how big is it in, and what is your like tap room aesthetic? Sure. Sure. Um, so it's actually an old, um, Volkswagen dealership. It was a Volkswagen and Porsche dealership in the sixties. Okay. Um, so it's, it's on top of a hill in downtown Knoxville, right off the interstate. So cars go by, you can see it. Nice. And, um, uh, full glass front building, 
uh, terrazzo floors, and it's uh, it was 6,700 square feet what we opened up with. And that was like the tap room uh, production area, and then like we have an upstairs office and storage. Nice. And um, so we started with six tens and two twenties, uh, so quite a bit of fermentation, all unis. Oh yeah. Uh, and on an oversized two vessel. 10 barrel system from Deutsche. Nice. So we have like a basically 18 barrel mash and a 15 barrel kettle for, you know, for big stouts or whatever. But, um, and then, so the tap room, we've got a bunch of lounge seating and, and, uh, couches and, and, uh, kind of like mid century, elegant Gothic, you know, oh, kind of okay. like a, like a, vampirish is kind of what we kind of <laughs> wanted it to be initially, you know. I think uh, it's not that. as dark as, you know, it's not as dark as kind of what we initially planned, I think, but it's pretty elegant. Uh, nice. That's and, nice. And uh, so, uh, you know, we did that, and then we just couldn't, I mean, we were just couldn't keep up with demand or anything, and so we, um, there was a trip, so I kind of credit Levi Funk for, ah, okay. for uh, our expansion a little bit because we were at dinner with him, and he was just asking us about business. I was like, we were, it was like six months in. I was on a trip up there, a lab trip. Nice. And, um, I don't know. He, he was asking, so, you know, asking us about business. And I was like, well, we just, you know, trying to, we opened six months ago, trying to keep up with demand and we just can't, can't create enough beer. And he's like, well, why don't you buy some more tanks and expand? I was like, dude, we just, <laughs> we just opened six months ago. And, uh, you know, not trying to keep it PC. He said, don't be, you know, you know, like he said, just call the bank and say, you want to do this. And, so literally, I got back to my office Monday, called the bank, and started the expansion. Of so we got a, it's connected to us like right, right just a, a wall separates it, and it's another sixty four hundred square feet of warehouse Jeez, space. Okay. That we, uh, you know, I started. Um, so we just it's right on the other side of the the brew house, and so uh, we plan just process piping over, and so we added two thirties and two twenties of unis and then two 20 barrel brights, a 30 barrel lager tank, and then another seven barrel bright. Wow. So we added, we added all that on. Um, so now we have 200 of fermentation and another 70 in brights. Wow. So 77. That's brights. crazy. So, that's pretty, that's awesome, man. And all within yeah, like six was, months. <laughs> you know? Well, so that, you know, that, that took forever because the supply chain went to shit, you know? So I'm right. sorry. I don't know. If I'm no, that's fine. Hey, the serious XM. Yeah, it's serious. You can <laughs> curse. All, if Howard going. Stern is right, I know. porn stars and stuff, know, you yeah. can curse. You're fine. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, you know, that was, you know, we started that process in April and it literally took forever to get the the bank approval again because uh, obviously we just opened and they were kind of hesitant. Of course. And then, uh, you know, without us putting any more money in. And yep. um, then... Uh, I think we got it delivered and about a year later, like it was finally commissioned. So right. it was April of 22 is kind of when we, when we commissioned it and it was, you know, we did, so 21, we did about 900 and like 950 barrels. Right. And then uh, last year, you know, we kind of ramped up into it, um, but we did like 16, I think 1680, I think is the number that we did. And then what do you guys what do you guys on par do this year? Um so probably twenty five, I think. Right. That's probably what what we'll be at. Yeah, that's what we're yeah. You sound like us. That's what we're aiming to do this year, about twenty five hundred. That's a good number, yeah, man. It's a lot of beer. Yeah. We're we're kinda in an optimization phase too, I think, where because we, we don't rush our tanks. Everything's pretty we basically schedule everything on a twenty eight day turn. So oh, wow. it's Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's very slow and that's just you know, trying to just with the brew team we have and being able to keep up with everything. Right. Uh, so, and are you, are you sending any of this out to distro or is this kind of all pushed through the front door there? So yeah, last year, the 1680, uh, we did a, just, it was like 950 in the tap room. Wow. Uh, is okay. what we did. Uh, so so it's over like half. A, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of tap room business. And then the rest of it went to distro a lot in Tennessee. And then we sent, you know, some, random drops here and there right um, we're still doing that like we sent a couple pallets to europe yep uh last month and we you know drop in new york and so we do tied with festivals or collabs or whatever yep. we'll try to send here into the market uh but we kind of regularly distro in tennessee 
We yep. self-distro Knoxville quite a bit, and uh, North Carolina is a, a kind of a big market for us. Nice, yeah. I like I do like North Carolina's market. Wh- which which of your beers do you think has emerged as like your flagship? Have there been like have there been any surprises in terms of which of the beers the public has responded to the most? Um, I don't know about surprises uh, really, but the uh, our Mexican lager Toro Yoso is kind of the one we sent. Of course, it's you know it's what we all drink, but right. um, you know it's I think lagers are finally are maybe catching on a little bit more now. It's kind of tough to get package out there a little bit, but um, uh, but Paper Crowns is our I guess would say our you know core flagship IPA, and it's it's still not a. a I don't know. Sometimes I don't like the term flagship about right. sometimes people think it's, you know, toned down or cheap to get, you know, to get out, out there. So we haven't, it's still dry hop pretty heavily. I think it's probably close to four pounds per barrel on the dry hop. And, oh, wow. And, um, I mean, but we keep it at a, we're able to get it to like a 14 or sorry, a $17 four pack is oh. kind of our, so still okay price, you know? Um, but we're still keeping the quality up, you know? Oh yeah, Absolutely. I mean, what styles do you think have really resonated with the public that really kind of helped put you guys on the map? Um, I mean, IPAs, we kind of took off a little bit more, more so on IPAs. We, uh, you know, last year we, we sent in beer to World Beer Cup, um, and I don't know, we thought we would, you know, could have a chance with, um, with Toro. Right. And we won gold and hazy IPA, and that was oh. like the... <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, I mean, that was like the, you know, 340 right. something entries yep. and, and like, there's not, we didn't even give it a chance. I mean, we, we did obviously, but it was, uh, that was the surprise. Right. Right. And, um, so from that, and then we got silver for Toro at GABF. Nice. Uh, so like with those two that, uh, kind of just springboarded a lot of it. Um, but I think IPAs, you know, generally is kind of what we what we're known for yep locally uh tap room wise is you know we've got a everybody's on sours so yep. we've got so many people coming in we we definitely notice a correlation of sales with the amount of you know different sours like tap room sales and sours we have on oh so nice we don't really distro any of those it's all tap room nice so what what is the craft beer scene like in knoxville i mean is it competitive like i mean how is it up there man uh, so we've got quite a bit of breweries. I think we're like 23 or 24 breweries, uh, small town, but it's, um, you know, it's, we're one of the largest. I think we may be producing the most right. actually now. Um, there's a couple that have bigger systems and, you know, than us, but they don't sell as much, but it's, uh, we're still kind of your local neighborhood town for the most part right. for breweries. Um, and, uh, so we, I think it's, if I was to say, if you know, like, kind of the styles that, you know, the hype styles or whatever, we're still kind of probably in 2017 or 2018, but we're, uh, it's, we're kind of pushing a lot of that and, and kind of getting some more regional, you know, and some national recognition a little bit. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see, but yeah, we're still kind of small beer town for sure. Not, you know, we're not as big as Nashville by any stretch. Right. Right. Yeah. Nashville's a different monster altogether. I mean, and, and kind of leading off of what you had said, like, I know your business partner Bentley said in an interview that one of your goals is to take a local brand and make it nationally relevant. Like, what does that mean to you guys? And, and how is that kind of reflected in like, kind of like your distribution strategy? Sure. Um, I don't know how much I've given thought on that since, (laughs) since probably that's been spoken, you know, but, uh, right. Um, I don't know. I think it's just, uh, you know, we know that tap room sales and local sales are what's going to keep us, you know, keep us moving and, and plans to grow and stuff. But I think the, you know, the, these festivals that we're going to, or the, you know, uh, tap, you know, the, the collabs and whatnot and tap takeovers in different markets, you know, our name out there more. And so it's taking something like paper crowns or rhymes like dimes, you know, and then sending that out, um, you know, along with some of the, you know, more, I guess, sought after double IPAs or triple IPAs or whatever. Uh, you sours. Know, we'll do sours that. too. Don't forget them sours. <laughs> and sours for sure. <laughs> so, 
that's the thing about, you know, on the sours, we've kind of switched over to this, you know, we pretty much do all these gluten-free sours now. Yep. And um, it's a little tougher to get those, um, the colas for that to be able to distro. Really? Yeah. So, because technically it's, you know, it's on a seltzer base. Um, ah, okay. So, you know, we could add some DME to it, but then we're, you know, and call it a beer, but we're not, uh, then it wouldn't be gluten-free at the time, which... Right. People, well, people kind of go crazy for that. Really? Um, yeah. Huh. Uh, so we've switched pretty much, and it's allowed us to, I mean, you know, to continuously brew base, and then, you know, with we post acidify or you know add add different fruits and whatever we want to do, and we're able to spin up something pretty quickly, you know, in just a couple of days of nice. an idea. So. Nice. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, speaking on sours, I mean, I think you know, because you were just here in Miami for Wakefest uh, eight and. We're working on that collaboration, obviously, which is what banana, banana cream pie. Yeah. And why is that? Why, why do you think that's important to do these collaborations and kind of get the brand on the road with these festivals and, and kind of help build that up? Sure. Yeah, I think the um, um, for us, I mean, it's just learning. I mean, we're you know we're we're still new and that's something that we've always something that's like a pet peeve of mine or something i hate is like going to some or somebody talking to somebody and it's like this is the what i've brewed and this is the way i like to brew it and this is the way i'm going to brew it you know like <laughs> something i just don't like so it's you know our our whole setup it was kind of like never settle was kind of our that's our llc name and kind of our motto is like you know there's you know, if we're trying to create it, like what's the, what's the, your favorite all citra IPA that you've ever had. Right. Right. And so it's like, mine's like ghost in the machine or, yep. you know, ACE, ACE from other half. And so like, how do we recreate that and put our own spin on it and do stuff? And so I think those uh, collabs, you know, it's kind of let us learn and let, you know, the, and the other breweries learn, you know, each other's processes and kind of get ideas and, and, kind of just push that envelope and just kind of to create, to keep evolving, you know, craft beer and different stuff. That way we're not doing the same thing forever, you know, so. No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, cause I mean, I, I mean, we've been in the game now eight years and I think all the collaborations we've done, I think you, we've always picked up a little bit of something from whoever we've worked with and that's kind of helped us expand and, and grow our business and get better at what we're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I think to kind of pigeonhole yourself into an idea like this is, you know, I'm just going to brew this way and there's no other way to brew a beer is kind of the wrong way to handle it. Yeah. I think the other big thing is like, we'd heard so much about Brad and Zool and, and and them, and it was an opportunity to kind of, even amongst the craziness, I didn't get too much of a chance to talk to you, but a a new friendship, a new relationship within beer, because you know, there's a lot of new breweries, new ish breweries that we don't know. So right. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's us. good to stay involved in the community and kind of help grow that community. And I, I think it's definitely an important aspect that, you know, we kind of bring back these collabs. Cause I think for two years, you know, it was kind of like not an easy thing for people to get out there and do the collabs. So I think it's right that we're kind of getting back on the track of doing that stuff. Yeah. In person, yeah. In, in person, not in person. Virtually. Right. Right. Not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're, and we're doing a lot, and and that's something we didn't do last year very much. Is, you know, it's all the festivals are like you know two or three a month, and right. so I still work, I still work full time, and you know doing those on the weekends are are pretty pretty taxing, right? So, right. Um, uh, but that's something I want to focus on more this year is do some more in person, yep, collabs and and you know trips that way instead of just remote. Of course, yep. we're still doing some remote collabs, you know, yep. here and there, but. No, I agree with that, and, I, and that's something that we're working our towards as well, getting back on track, doing those like in-person collabs and stuff like that. But kind of leading off the community, like I, I wanted to ask, like how important has the support of the University of Tennessee community been to the growth of your brewery? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's. I mean, obviously, we're we're huge Tennessee fans, and uh, we get quite a bit of a college crowd in, even though we're not a, you know, we're not the we're definitely not going to be the cheapest brewery right. if you go to in town. So, right. Uh, so we, we get way more college crowd in that than I anticipate. Right. And, um, so it's, you know, that's a lot driven by those sours and, Heck and, yeah. uh, you know, and lagers of course, but, um, it's, 
you know, we're, we're, we're trying to set up some tailgates. We want to do some stuff. I actually have an, a meeting today with uh, Spire Sports. Oh, um, nice. All right. The, the NIL group, you know, so yep. uh, we're, we're meeting with them today to talk about stuff with University of Tennessee and doing some things. Oh, boy. Um, so. <laughs> Are you going you can have some yeah. football players uh, that you're back in there? <laughs> I mean, it, it, that would be pretty cool, but yeah. That would be uh, awesome. We've had a. Uh, we had AJ Johnson in the tap room uh, last oh, year. Nice. Uh, so, All right. That's of amazing. course he's been gone for several years. He's, yeah, yeah. You know, at, That's awesome though, man. I mean, it's always like it's always a good thing. I mean, we've worked with former University of Miami Hurricane players, and and we've talked about trying to work with some of the guys. Now, obviously, they got to be twenty one or over uh, to be related right. to the beer, but you know, it's still I think it's still an awesome thing to be involved in college football that way, or any kind of sports uh, involved with the universities that way. So I finally got I got one last question for you. It's tell me about your love for scuba diving, and <laughs> when did you get certified? And did you get a chance to do some uh, some diving here while you were here in Miami? Uh, I did not get to dive in Miami, regrettably. But uh, that's yeah, it's probably my favorite thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. We, um, my wife and I, got certified. I don't know, five years ago, maybe four right. or five years ago. At a sandals resort, we got a, we got married in sandals back in 24, 2014. So, <laughs> okay, uh, all right. <laughs> I had to, had to make sure I was right there. Yeah. Um, and so we usually go every year, and, then, and including in that included in that trip is all the diving. And so um, uh, that's something we we do, you know, once a year at least. And then we we went on a couple extra dive trips last year, and that's just a I don't know. That's my favorite thing. To it's just a it's another planet you know absolutely cool absolutely 100 well now that i know that about you so next time you come down i I know a few people that that have boats and uh like to go diving his dad will take you out on the boat yeah my my old man will take you out sweet yeah Yeah, for sure definitely but um i want to say thank you very much for for your time brother this has been uh been awesome and uh i'll be up there very soon so we're, we're already talking i'll be up there in april so uh hopefully i'll be able to hang out and get to see you man yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one, brother. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest founded, owns, and operates Wolf of Tacos, Miami's popular pop-up taco stand, which has garnered local and even national media attention for its callejero-style tacos. The trompo, a vertical spit that he uses to slow roast the al pastor, pays homage to the taco stands of his native Mexico City. After working in several of Miami's most buzzworthy restaurants, he found his true calling during the pandemic and has since taken it to the streets. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Eduardo Lara. Thank you for coming in. We're actually in the tap room. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. You were a popular food vendor at last week's Wakefest, and you're here at the brewery every Tuesday night, so we're really excited to share your story. You were born in Mexico City, Ciudad Mexico. How old were you when you moved to Miami, and what your what brought your family here? I was three years old. I was a little baby, and uh, my family was moved over here because of a company that my dad was working for, and you know, in search of a better life. You know, the classic story. Um, my parents, it wasn't safe in Mexico at the time, so they wanted to, to give me a better life than they had. How long ago was that? No, no, that was like twenty-one years ago. He's, he's a baby. <laughs> he sure is. So even though you lived in Miami, you would visit your grandparents every summer. How did those visits keep you connected to the food and to your culture and, and all the things that makes you the Wolf of Tacos? Well, I didn't have many uh, cousins uh, my age, so I would connect with my family through the food. We would have all the breakfast together. My grandma would come and cook it, and she'd be cooking since the morning, and uh, we would share lunch together. We would have the sobremesa, which is, you know, the meal that you have after you have your meal, the, and then dinner. The very was, typical yeah. Spaniard thing, but exactly. also appropriated by all the rest of the Spanish cultures. Exactly. So it was just a lot of eating all the time, and I was always around, you know, adults. And, but uh, it was a limited experience. It's not something that I could access. So it, the food was just better all around. Everything. Everything was better. The ingredients were better. The milk was better. The cheese was better. The butter was better. The meat was better. So 
And even as a child, I could recognize that and I could miss it. So that's, that's really where it all starts. When you were 15, you were on one of those visits when you borrowed some money from your cousin to make an impulse purchase. What did you buy at a flea market that afternoon? Yes, I bought, I bought the trompo. I bought the, the, my first rotisserie, my vertical rotisserie, and I bought a little tortilla machine and a bunch of fireworks. This is when you were 15, so yeah. we're going to say about, about 10 years ago almost. Nine, nine years ago. Okay. <laughs> nine years ago, yeah. It's wow. Crazy. And, and what did you do with that? Oh, I mean, I, I knew that I wanted it because I was obsessed with tacos. So when I would go to Mexico, you know, when I was, you know, a little bit older, like a teenager, I would try to escape as often as I could because I thought being around all those adults was pretty boring. So I wanted to do my own thing all the time. And slowly they let me have some freedom. So I would have my domingo, which is like my, my allowance, if you will, that my grandparents would give me. And I would go and I would buy tacos. Buy tacos and fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> things, things that were just were not accessible to a 13, 14, 15-year-old in, 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 the, in States. the States. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't buy fireworks in the States. Yeah. And I could definitely not buy street tacos in the States. Yeah. No, so, no cerveza? No? Or you don't no. want to admit that on the radio? I wasn't, I wasn't into cerveza until a little bit later. But then I <laughs> became really into cerveza. <laughs> <laughs> so can you explain to our listeners, uh, yes, the trompo is a vertical rotisserie, but can you explain how it's used? Sure. It's very, very similar to the Turkish and Lebanese machines, you know, where you have the, the, the donor kebabs and the, and the shawarma and the, and the gyros. But uh, the Mexican machine is a little bit more, more crazy. It's almost like a flamethrower. But okay. it's, it's, it's a huge part of the flavor. Okay, so you basically, you stack your, your pork? Right. Is that so, correct? Yes, correct. So I, I use pork. Um, the Mexicans mostly have used pork since uh, that technology was brought by the Lebanese in, I, think, I believe, the 1700s. And it was only until the 1900s until they actually started using pork. Uh, this was in Puebla. And that's where tacos árabes were born. And then only about, what, less than 100 years ago? was when El Pastor was born. And, uh, and then it was brought to Mexico City, where they added the pineapple. And that's marinated pork, thinly sliced, uh, and stacked on, uh, on, a, on a big spit. And then that, that gets cooked all day, all day, roasted. So the heat on the side, as it slowly turns, Yes, correct? so it's actually three types of heat. That's the difference between the Mexican machine and the you know, Middle Eastern cousins. So... You have the heat from the convection of the hot air moving up, which is what makes the trompo shape. So you have really, really hot air blasting from the bottom, and as it rises, it, and it, it cools down a little bit. So that's why you force the shape of the It's cone. like a cone, yeah. yeah. But that's why the, the, the shape is forced, because of how strong it is on the bottom. So oh, you I have that, that. that heat from the convection of the air. You have the heat from the radiation of the stones. So they use a really, really good refractory material, similar to like a plaster of Paris, but more strong. And uh, the iconic shape of the stones were actually borrowed from uh, old water heaters. So in Mexico, you could buy those stones anywhere because they used them for water heaters. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that was designed for that at all. It was just some genius Mexican engineering. They were like, you know what? I'm going to put these stones <laughs> and I'm going to use them for cooking. They, they're, they're, they work very well. So that's where the iconic shape comes from. And those stones, they retain a lot of heat and they, you know, they radiate that heat and that cooks the meat through. So you have the air to cook the meat up and down. You have the radiation to cook the meat through the surface. And the most important type of heat is the direct contact with the fire. Right. Which is the, you blast the pressure on the, on the regulator and boom, it's a flamethrower. It's similar to, it's like almost like comparing sauteed vegetables versus wok fried vegetables. Right. You'll never get those, those little fireworks that you get when you're, when working you're walking. On walking. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, we all like wok sauteed vegetables better than sauteed vegetables. More flavor, right? Exactly. It's like a, uh, it's an ingredient. So you didn't use the trompo and no, the, and the tortilla press use the for a while for, for three years. It stayed in my closet. When did you start working in restaurants and what was your first job? I started working in restaurants around 18. I think. Yeah, I was 18. It was up or it was, I was 17, about to be 18. I was working at a zoo and like <laughs> I needed extra cash and I was 
on a first date with one of my ex-girlfriends. And this was at the Midtown Garden Center. And there was a little taco truck there, uh, La Pollita. Yeah. It's uh, Alex and Lucci. Now they have a Michelin star. Now they have Boya Day. And uh, yeah, Boya Day, Walrus Rodeo. And they're excellent restaurateurs. But, you know, back then when they were recently new in Miami, moved from L.A., uh, they had La Pollita. And I struck up a conversation with them, like, oh, my God, like, I have a tortilla machine just like that. <laughs> I have a trompo. And that was basically my interview. They're like, what are you doing? Just come on the truck. I had no idea. I, I was shocked, like, that they would accept someone just like that off the street. And I totally get it. I do the same thing now. <laughs> but uh, that was, like, my first ever taste of the, of the industry, yeah. working in that little taco truck in the Midtown Garden Center. That's awesome. So you've worked at some really popular restaurants. Obviously, La Pollita was this pop-up before they had Boya Day, which, like you just mentioned, they have a Michelin star. You worked at Mr. Mandolin, La Santa, Q. What did you learn in the kitchens of those places? Well, after working at La Pollita, I I knew that I wanted to do tacos. I I, I just knew. And every restaurant I worked after that, I tried to extract as much knowledge as I could to that benefit. So, for example, at La Santa, like I learned really how to operate a taco restaurant. You know, uh, at uh, at Q, I worked at Q two. All the wood fire cooking techniques, all the marinade, all the marinades, all the brining techniques. Uh, mind you, I mean Chef Michael Lewis was working for Jean Georges, so yeah. those were those recipes were. We're a little less Asian and a lot more French. Yeah. So a lot of that technique, I, I really, I really learned and applied to the food that I do now. Um, obviously, Mr. Mandolin had to run a service with a with a spit, and we were like super busy during the pandemic, and I had to learn how to shave a lot of meat very fast. Right. And so it was just like this this journey of meeting the right people and and using and applying all the knowledge to creating and developing the recipes that I use now. So. When the pandemic shut down the restaurant industry in 2020, that's when you were at Mr. Mandolin? Um, yeah, actually, I was supposed to get a job at Mandolin, and then the pandemic hit, and they were like, dude, I'm sorry, I can't give you a job at Mandolin, but we're opening Mr. Mandolin if you're interested. And I was like, yeah, of course. So that's when I started, and Mr. Mandolin was a really important restaurant. It was where I really fine-tuned all the, the skills for the pastor. And where I met some of the purveyors that, that actually still sell me some products today. Tell me about your first pop-up during the pandemic. Where was it? What did you serve? And how did people respond? Oh, my God. It was so funny. Actually, uh, someone else reminded me that my first pop-up wasn't at my house. My first pop-up was at Lincoln's Beard Brewing. Believe it or not. Shout out to Lincoln's Beard. Shout out to Lincoln's Beard Brewing. Um, and it was because of my Cisco rep when I was the, the, the chef of Fuchs. My Cisco rep. Uh, Elio at the time, which is like working at the brewery, he was oh, a bartender. Oh yes, yes, of course, yes. Elio. Yeah, uh, he was like, dude, like you're looking, we're looking for someone to, to put some food, and it was just the the opportunity that I had. I mean, I didn't have the trompo up; I just made tacos with a flat top. I had a little buffet table. It was it was adorable. All my friends came, but then, uh, but that was way before I was the wolf of tacos. When I was the wolf of tacos, the first pop up was at my house, and it was just uh, out of pure frustration. I took my machine, modified it, and I was like, no, 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 we're, we're doing a pop-up out of my house today. It was raining. It was, it was horrible. Like, it, it just... Everything it, that could go everything wrong. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And people showed up. And the first person to ever show up was, was Juan from uh, Luna Rosa. Shout out to Juan from Luna Rosa Pizza. And he was also a pandemic pop-up, uh, slinging pies out of, his, out of his kitchen and delivering them. He, w- he delivered me a pizza from Cutler Bay. And I was like, wait, what? He came from Cutler Bay. He's like, yeah, man, you got to hustle. I was like, oh, my God. Jeez. Jesus, yeah. I have a question. How did, how did people know about the pop-up? Because you didn't have an Instagram page at that point, right? Well, I did. I had a personal Instagram page, and I was you know, very active in the culinary community. I mean, I worked at okay. 12 restaurants. Okay. <laughs> I kept in touch with most of those people. So it was a lot of people in the business that came to, a the, lot to of, your house. And it was mostly people in the business. Yeah. So as the pop-up evolved i switched from taco tuesdays to sundays and it became the speakeasy the watering hole for all the chefs for all industry so at any given night i would have two or three different restaurants just chilling in my backyard 
<laughs> yeah, because I, I bet your neighbors in, loved it. In case, <laughs> as long as I gave them tacos and gave them beer, they they didn't really care. In case our <laughs> listeners don't know, in the restaurant industry, usually days off are Sunday Monday. Sunday Monday, exactly. Usually, so I had all the chefs. Right. Usually, so and uh, the hours were because I was still working at the time, and at the time I was working at Cruise Kitchen. Uh, and and uh, Jaguar, <laughs> I was working. Oh my god, no! I have too many restaurants. Um, my day off or my half day was Sunday at five p.m. and then I would rush home, do all the prep, and open around nine, from nine till three, four, five in the morning. So it was a late night thing. Yeah, very chef thing. Very chefy. So it was all the crews getting off of work. They needed somewhere where they could have a beer and hang out and and have some music and some you know like nice lights and great food. And exactly, and some tacos. I wasn't so great before. It's it's gotten way better, but uh, but no, like people saw the potential. What was the moment you realized that tacos were your thing? Like you, you talk about that moment with La Pollita, and you were like, "I want to do this." Nah, I mean, when I was fifteen, like it has to be like the the feeling of eating that taco on the street, the the freedom of of going and having that experience, but only being able to have that experience once or twice a year. That's really what. What drove me? I was like, no, I think everyone deserves to feel this way that I'm feeling right now. You've had some amazing media coverage, including a video on Tasty, which is part of BuzzFeed, an article by Carlos Frias in the Miami Herald, and a coveted Best of Miami award from the Miami New Times. Describe the feeling when these things came out. I'm going to sound kind of like a dick, but <laughs> I had no idea some of those articles came out. So the day the article... That's not a dick. That's you being humble. <laughs> because you're so immersed in your craft. It was, it was crazy because the day that the Miami Herald article came out was also the day where I was on Telemundo. So they called me the day before. They were like, Eduardo, like, would you be, care to be on live television? I was like, absolutely. And the next day, the t- that Tuesday, or no, it was a Friday actually, when I was still doing Fridays here at Jay Wakefield, was the also the first time I was going to do a double pop-up. So I was, I was going to be at a location here at Jay Wakefield and a location at Space Park uh, for the Raves. You're and nuts? Yes, I'm nuts, exactly. So that day was insane because the article dropped that morning and I had to be in Doral at a TV studio. So I had two teams working on the pop-ups on some of the busiest days because that's when everybody saw the article in that morning and they came and they, and <laughs> and they showed up. And I, and I was, you know, too busy being... It's way too far away with a dead car battery. No, no, that day was insane. So, like, most of those articles, I had no idea they, they came out because I was just trying to figure out <laughs> how to make tacos and, you know, work and find a schedule because I was doing everything. I was, I was prepping everything. I was uh, planning everything, all the logistics, everything, everything, everything. I remember when you had just, like, this very skeleton crew. Yes. Like, it was just you and, like, Two other people and two other chefs. Usually, that's that's how I was successful because I would I would I would kind of delegate all the taco stand operations to like my colleagues, you know, established chefs. I've had some pretty cool people come and work at taco stand, but because I have to focus on the pastor because nobody knows how to make uh, how to how to slice the pastor. So it's a good transition into the next question. Why do you think people love your tacos so much? What's the secret? Is it the meat? Is it the tortillas? Is it the salsas? Because I think, I think it's the hospitality. I think it's the, the nah, come on. No, no, no. It's the banter. It's <laughs> cause you'll have a good taco. You'll have a bad taco, but for some reason, like they, they know every time they come to the taco stand, like we know who they are. We know what they like. And it's that, that rapport that you build. It's almost like going to the, to the bar. You know, you don't, you don't, you can, you may, you might drive a little bit farther to go to that nice dive bar because, you know, it's like, it's like home. Everybody knows you. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the familiarity, but your tacos are good, dude. Like we don't get a taco like you would walking around, you know, the Efe here in Miami. Like it's not, you're not seeing people with trompos <laughs> shaving. Like, well, we, I mean, and we have, look, we have five taco shops five within on one street. Like, not even an eighth of a mile. You know what I mean? So, what is it? Like, and, and the salsas, are they your grandmother's recipes? Like, what, what are we talking about here? So, I think what it is, it's just um, st- staying true to the craft. Uh, I'm not above tacos. I'm not going to elevate anything. 
I want to first learn how to do things correctly, how to shave pastor right off the spit, not just kind of like whack it off and put it on the flat top. That's a style of pastor. I'm not dogging it by any means, but it's just but not, it's not the, your style. But it's not the style that I prefer. Right. So the style that I prefer is is lean almost, and you shave it off the spit directly into a tortilla, nice and laminated, ex- extremely juicy and crispy, and it's perfect every single time. And that's what I try to do here at the taco stand. Like, I'd rather not serve a taco than to give someone a bad taco. And I think that's that's kind of the rule that is, you know, that that's why people have had so many good experiences. Because every taco has to be like the one that I eat in Mexico City. So you, you're basically just showcasing the ingredient and the proper preparation of how you feel. Yes. You want to replicate that memory for those people yes. of what you had growing up going to Mexico. Exactly. And that requires special equipment. You know, uh, the, the machine, I fabricated it in my backyard. Uh, the, the comal that we use, it was like a special one. We had to, <laughs> we had to find it and, and then all the way in where... Pompano in like some sketchy market. It was like the last one they had, but it was large enough for, for a service like this. It's called a choricera. If you can imagine like a big mariachi hat, but mm-hmm. it's made of stainless steel. Okay. And you put all your proteins around the hat and then the center of the hat, you can fry things. So it's, it's like a two-in-one pot of lard and frying pan. Wow. But for some reason, like the meat cooks differently in that machine than if you do it in an oven or in a stove. Right. Can't explain it. <laughs> it's it's the vessel. It's How about the, the tortillas? What, what's the the tortillas were 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 a bit of a challenge. Um, I would I would drive every weekend to Pompano to to buy a brand called El Milagro, which was like the closest thing to to street tortillas because there's many types of tortillas, but there's only one tortilla that you get on the street and it has a funky flavor. It's a bit smaller and it's a bit yellow. It's corn. It's corn. Yeah, yeah. it's nixtamalized corn. Mm-hmm. But the problem in Mexico is that anywhere you look. You're going to have a good tortilla. You're going to find it. It's yeah. not going to be an issue. Here, yeah. it's a very big issue. Uh, so I had to drive very far every weekend to buy the suadero, the longaniza, and the, the tortillas. And then eventually, you know, through community, uh, other taco restaurants would come and have the food. And they're like, no, like, you deserve to have a better tortilla. And they would give me their contacts. And, and that's, that's a lot of, like, how I've grown, too, just community building that community exactly of like we help each other out like i i shoot them a a guy or a dishwasher and you know someone i give them a hand whenever they need and they give me a contact or it's just it's just that trade you know it's it's all we all understand that we're doing this for the better you know for the miami's culture and um and and that's how we help each other out you know it's better to bring each other up than to bring each other down because if you win i win right there's enough people. There's enough. There's enough for around. everyone. Yeah, yep. exactly. So what's next? What's next? I mean, doubling down on, on the catering, honestly. Catering. Catering is, uh, is, where, is where it is. Right There's now, no brick and mortar. No brick and mortar. I mean, I have a, a couple cool things off my sleeve, but they're not, you know. Solidified. Solidified, so I don't want to say anything. But, uh, but pop-ups and private events and festivals are plenty right now i think it keeps you exclusive yes in that sense and people for some reason love this exclusivity of like high demand but i can't oh my god like i have to be at jay wakefield on tuesday yes, to get every tuesday the wolf of tacos <laughs> yeah That's no a that plug. It's, well, if we've become synonymous it's like people people know that i'm gonna be here at jay wakefield yeah. yeah you you had mentioned something in one of the interviews that i read about um the advantages of a pop-up from a business standpoint, what do you like about a pop-up as opposed to either a food truck or a brick and mortar? I mean, with a pop-up, like I told you about that crazy day, I can be in multiple locations at once. So whereas a food truck, sure, it's nice to wake up and not have to build a kitchen from scratch, but you really can't fit a food truck everywhere. Right. And whereas a pop-up, all of my equipment, I can move it around. I can design it to be as efficient as possible for every location. Right. So that's, that's why I like pop-ups. There's uh, a lower overhead. You know, usually I can get away with, with striking deals. But if you pull up a truck, like the city, the city pulls up. Yeah. The laws for food trucks in Miami, especially city of Miami, within the last 
three years have completely changed. Um, it used to be a little less pain in the ass. And yeah, now, but now it's a yeah. major pain in the ass. Yeah. You can't um, just pull up a truck and right. start selling food. Absolutely not. Are you still doing the crazy music festivals oh, all yeah. night? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that can do, you know, multiple activations. That's a cool thing. I'm not stuck to one truck or paying rent and only and opening an entire week at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas over here, I, can, I only open when I know I'm going to make money. I choose the festivals that I want to go to. I choose the events that I want to do. It's either events that I, that I want to do, like Wakefest. I, that was amazing. Like, thank you so much for having us. And then there's events that we don't necessarily want to do. It's like, okay, this is our minimum, you know? <laughs> With uh, South Beach Wine and Food, is there anything that you're going to be doing? Because that's coming yes, up yes. next weekend. Oh, man. Actually, should I say this on, on TV? Yeah. So, on TV, on radio, on, radio, yeah. on Sirius XM. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, we'll be, we, we will be participating at at the Sobe Tacos and Tequila event. Okay. Oh, nice. When is that? That's uh, Saturday. That's Saturday. That's Saturday the 25th, I believe. Okay. And, and then Thursday the 23rd, I'm kind of hosting my own event at my house. That is, oh, that nice. is super <laughs> exclusive. <laughs> Very exclusive. That's Maybe why you shouldn't say it on national radio. Yeah. <laughs> All these people are going to show up to your house. Oh, man. FOMO. The invitations well, went out, huh? That's kind of, <laughs> but that's kind of like how it was back in the day, right? So yeah. you're bringing it back to like the I'm beginnings. bringing it back that one time, and it's going to be for like a proof of concept of what we want to do in the future. Nice. nice. I, I have a question before you go. What kind of beer are you going to serve at your house that night? Jay Wakefield beer. Yeah. <laughs> Loggers and Pilsners. Loggers and Pilsners. Is that Loggers. what goes best with the, with the tacos in oh, your opinion? Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Or Campo de Fresas. That, one, that one's oh, really nice, too. Oh, everyone loves that one. <laughs> yeah. Because it's nice and acidic and... Yeah. It's perfect to, to wash down some tacos. I wish we could do like a michelada, though. We should. We should, For honestly. that night, we should have mix, you know? Oh, for, for, oh, for Taco Tuesday or for, for the party night? For the party night. Oh, for, of course. And then when the mix <laughs> runs out, if you didn't get it, too bad. And I have the chalices, too. There I've you shown go. you the chalices. There you go. Oh, man. Sounds like a good it's gonna time. Be, it's going to be a great night. Before you go, can you tell the- us... Instagram, whatever socials, where can we find you? We know Tuesdays at Jay Wakefield. Tuesdays at Jay Wakefield. 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Usually. Usually. Till 10, 30, 11-ish. It depends on how busy. Uh, and tonight, Friday nights at Dante's Hi-Fi. Friday nights at Dante's Hi-Fi. Yeah, I think Alan was here not too long ago. Yes, we interviewed him on the show. And your handle is at the Wolf of Tacos. At the Wolf of Tacos. Okay. Thank you so much, Eduardo. Thank you, guys. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Brad West and Eduardo Lara, my host, Jonathan Wakefield, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at our new time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Business Radio 132, or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real. <laughs>